It called her the Witch of Wall Street. The Witch of Wall Street. Henrietta Green, known as Hetty, was born in 1834 to a New England family which owned a very successful whaling business. Hetty was particularly close to her father growing up. He taught her how to do certain things that a dad might teach his daughter. But one of the things that he taught her to do was to have a great appreciation for a good financial section of a newspaper at a very early time in her life. By the time she was six years old, she was reading at six o'clock in the morning the financial pages of the newspaper. And you know what? She was so good at it that by the time she had reached the age of 13, she became the bookkeeper of her family's whaling business. From the time she was in her mid-twenties until the time she was in her mid-thirties, several of Hetty's family members, including her mother and her father, had passed away, leaving Hetty with a sum of money. She took that money that had been left to her and she invested it shrewdly. Among her many investments, Hetty purchased Civil War bonds. And through these Civil War bonds, Hetty became incredibly wealthy. She made a ton of money. She then decided to take the money that she gained from her Civil War bonds and that she would reinvest those, and she decided to buy railroad bonds. And once again, she hit the jackpot. She was doing very well. She had some great investment strategies. And through her investment strategies, Hetty amassed a fortune as a Wall Street financier. She amassed just an absolute fortune, and as a woman, was the only one ever at that time to have done so, the only woman ever to have done anything like that. She had grown her financial worth to an equivalent of $4.6 billion in today's money, making her the richest woman in the world at the time. She was the richest woman in the world. Her resources were immense. Her fortune was incredible. She had more money than most of us could count. She could have everything that she ever wanted. Hetty was well known. In fact, she was so well-known that she actually made it into the Guinness Book of World Records. But her notoriety that got her into the Guinness Book of World Records may not be what you had expected. She didn't make it into the Guinness Book for her incredible riches. And if you look under the entry of world's shrewdest investor, you won't see Hetty's picture. You won't find her under the heading that says world's greatest philanthropist. Hers is a very, very interesting entry in the world book. It's under the heading world's most miserly person. The extent of her miserliness is astonishing. It's reported that she one time stayed up an entire night searching her carriage high and low for a postage stamp that she had lost that was worth two cents. Other reports tell us that she would never use hot water because she didn't want to spend the money that it would take to heat it. For that same reason... I'm told that Hetty would eat only cold oatmeal because she didn't want to pay for the heat to warm it up. She's said to have kept broken biscuits in her handbag so that if she ever got hungry, she wouldn't need to spend money at a restaurant. She could just eat her broken biscuits out of her handbag. She rarely ever washed her hands, and she would only wash the hems of her dresses because those were the things that got dirtiest. She did that to save money on soap. She, in fact, would wear her dresses. She would wear the same black dress. She would wear the same undergarments until she had literally worn them out. She could no longer wear them because she had completely worn them out. She was the richest woman in the world, and yet she appeared to be totally and completely impoverished. 
And knowing that she appeared to be so impoverished, she took advantage of that. She knew that everybody thought that she looked beggarly. And so one time when her son Ned broke his leg as a child, she scoured New York City going from one free clinic to the next free clinic, hoping that she could find a clinic that did not recognize her as the multi-billionaire and she could get free medical attention for her son's leg. She was looking for free service so long, waiting so long, that by the time she actually allowed her son to receive medical attention, his leg had healed improperly and ultimately had to be amputated. I hear you all moan, and you're all thinking the same thing I am, aren't you? What a foolish waste. What a foolish waste. Hetty had all the money she could have ever wanted. She had all the money she could have ever needed. In fact, she had so much money that the city of New York actually came to her for loans on several occasions. She, of course, obliged at a rather healthy interest rate. Yet, for her own personal needs and for the needs of her own family, she absolutely refused to open the checkbook. She absolutely refused to open her checkbook, and so the money just sat there in chemical bank serving only one purpose, to get more money. That was it. That's why she had money, so that she could use it to get more money. As you have seen, all of her wealth was completely useless, wasn't it? That kind of wealth is completely useless when it comes to life and practical matters because she would not write the check to spend her resources. She would not write a check to spend the money that she had saved all of these years. It's a general rule. I don't think I have a problem with that. If you're like me, you go to work so that you can have resources available to you, and then as soon as you get home, you spend them, don't you? Actually, uh, as I was digging around, I found that the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, as known as FINRA, they report that 60% of Americans spend as much or more than they make every single year. But not heady. When we first began our study of the book of Ephesians, I told you all that the book is split into two sections. You will remember that. The first three chapters teach us positional truth. The first three chapters tell us who we are in Christ. And then the last three chapters teach us practical truth. The first three chapters have told us some of the most amazing things. They've told us of the amazing resource that's available to us in Christ. Do you remember that? They've taught us all of the things that we have in Christ. We've learned that in Christ, we have already, in the past tense, we already have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You have them all. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the Bible teaches us in Ephesians. In Christ, the Bible teaches that God has chosen us out from the very beginning, and He has sealed us, and He has promised our salvation by giving us the down payment of the Holy Spirit. We already have that. In Christ, we learn that He has made us, who were once dead and insensitive to spiritual stimulus, alive, and He has bathed us in the incomparable riches of His grace and of His mercy. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. In Christ, He has adopted us and He has grafted us into the family of God so that we have absolutely unrestricted access. We have unfettered access right into the very presence of the Almighty God Himself. We can walk right into His presence freely with confidence in Christ. 
We cannot even begin to imagine, friends, the implications of the type of resource that we have in Christ. We can't imagine the riches that are at our fingertips. You can't begin to conceive of them. You have more than you could ever want. Sometimes I get a kick out of talking about all the things I would do if I ever won the lottery. Do any of you ever do that? Was it, I think it was October of last year that the Mega Millions was actually $1.6 billion? How many of you sat around and did what I did and said things like, well, I'll pay off my home, right? I'll pay off everybody else's home. I'd give millions of dollars to Root River Church. <laughs> I would buy the biggest truck in the world. I mean, I would buy, right? I would buy the biggest truck in the world. I would quit my job and I would buy an island in the South Pacific and I would live there every January. (laughs) But I have to confess to you, I've never done any of those things. And I suspect you haven't either, have you? Why not? Why haven't you done that? I'm going to tell you why. Because I don't have $1.6 billion. Do you? I don't have the resource to write that kind of check. I cannot write a check for funds that are not in my checking account. I've tried that. (laughs) And if you've ever tried that, you know what happens, right? You get that little envelope with the window on it in the mail, and you're a little bit embarrassed, and you feel a little bit foolish... He explained to your wife how it happened. Now listen, as we approach the last half of the book of Ephesians, you are going to find out how you should spend your resource. You're going to find out in chapters 4 through 6 how you should spend your resource. Paul is telling us you should buy this and you should build that. You should go here. You should go there. And so I want to ask you, What is the difference between the believer who does buy those things with his resource and the believer who does not buy those things with his resource? Have you ever thought about that? Does the believer buy those things with his resource? Well, some do. Some of them do, some don't. And the difference is that the believer who buys those things knows how to write a check. And the rest of us are those who never wash their hands and spend their life eating cold oatmeal. Sounds funny, doesn't it? But that's really what it is. The difference between the believer who has everything and the believer who has nothing is the ability to write a check. It's the willingness to write a check. Listen to me. Spiritually speaking, the resource for you to do what you need to do spiritually is already in your bank account. The money is already there. You already have everything that you need. All of the resources for you to do what God wants you to do are in the bank, but some believers absolutely refuse to write the check. They absolutely refuse to spend the resource. As we come to our passage for today, which is the last portion of Ephesians chapter 3, and I believe this is one of the most important passages in all of the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to tell us how to write a check. That's what's going to happen here. If you don't know that you have money, you're not going to buy anything, are you? 
And so Paul has been telling us how much we have in Christ. Because if you don't know that you have it, you're not going to buy anything. But at the same time, if you don't know what to buy, you'd be better off to not spend anything, wouldn't you? You have to know what you have, and then you have to know how to spend what you have. And so this is the way that it works in Paul's writings. If you don't know what to spend the money on, don't spend it. But if you've got it, and you're listening to the instruction of the Scripture, you will know what to write the check on. I believe that this is one of the most important things that a pastor can tell people. It is so important that pastors tell people, this is who you are in Christ. And based on that information, this is how you ought to live. That's the pastor's job, isn't it? This is who you are in Christ, and based on that, this is how you must live. And that's what's going on here in the book of Ephesians. Paul is saying your bank account is filled with all of these resources in chapters 1 through 3. He's saying here are the things that you should buy with those resources in chapters 4 through 6. Do you see it? Here are your resources. Here's what you should buy. And where we are this morning is in a transitional verse between those two sections of the book of Ephesians. And what he's going to teach us here in this transitional section is how to write a check so that we are able to spend the resource that we have on the right things. So I'm going to take you now to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 14. Paul starts off by saying this, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Well, for what reason, Paul? For this reason, what do you mean? For what reason? Well, based on everything that I have been telling you in chapter 2. That's what he's saying. Based on everything that I've been saying to you in the previous chapter. This is what it sounds like. Because Christ makes us spiritually alive, in verse 5, if you've got your Bible, take a look at chapter 2. Because Christ makes us alive, in verse 5. Because we are His worksmanship, in verse 10. Because we are citizens and members of His household, in verse 19. Because we have the teaching of the apostles and prophets, in verse 20. Because we are built together into a dwelling place for the Almighty God, in verse 22. For those reasons, I bow my knee. For those reasons, I bow my knee before the Father. For those reasons, I get on my knees and I pray. And what is Paul praying? Paul's praying for the Ephesians that they would realize this great resource that they have. He's praying for them that they would understand this great power that their position in Christ provides for them. He needs them to understand how much they have. Lord, help them to understand how completely sufficient their checking account is. Help them to understand how deep their checking account is. Help them to understand how much resource they have. Because the very power of God is present in all those who believe, Paul says, God, I pray that they would cash in on that resource. I pray that they would cash in on the resource that's available to them. Let them spend their money. Let them spend the resource. Verse 15 tells us that everything is for His glory. And we've seen that over the last several weeks. We know that everything is from Him. Everything is for Him. He alone is glorified. 
He alone is called great when he takes people like us who were dead in our sins, when he takes a smelly corpse like me and he makes him alive. And God himself is glorified when we, who were a non-people, are formed into one church family, united through the bond of peace and the Holy Spirit. And he receives all glory when he takes those of us who have been called non-people and makes us sons. And when he gives us access to his resource, it all comes from him. And he's glorified when that happens. It's all from him. It's all for him. You have done nothing to deserve it, but it is all available to you if you are willing to write a check. You see this? Now, as we move into verse 16, we're going to get into the real meat of this transitional passage. This is very important here. What you're going to see here, if you were to look at the original Greek language, It's a series of what we call purpose clauses. And if you have your Bible, I want you to follow along, and you're going to very clearly see this. There are a series of purpose clauses. And this series of clauses is progressive in its nature, okay? So what that means to us, in practical terms, is that we take them step by step by step, okay? First you begin at step one, then you go to step two, then you go to step three. You can't just jump into step three and then go back to one and up to two and then to five. That's not how it works. They're progressive. You begin at one and you take the next step and then the next step and the next step. So if you have your Bible, follow along. I'm going to encourage you to do that and you're going to see very clearly this progression. So let's take a look now at the first step of the progression and we're only going to get through two of those today and then next week if you'll come back we'll finish off with the last two or three. So take a look at verse 16 with me here in chapter 3. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. I want you to think about that for a minute. According to his riches, based on the extent of his riches, proportionately to that, he wants God to grant you strength with power through his spirit in your what? In your inner being. He wants you to have this power in your inner being. As I was thinking about this, I thought of all of the many ways that we spend our time and we spend our resource and we spend our money attempting to care for and strengthen our outer being. I think of all of the time we spend trying to build the outer man. Arnold Schwarzenegger wrote that he trained twice a day, six days a week. He would spend up to five hours a day in a gym. That's not uncommon for professional athletes. Mike Tyson worked out three times a day. But even those of us who don't look like professional athletes, I'm not a professional athlete, probably surprised to hear that. (laughs) But did you know that even those of us who are not professional athletes spend a great deal of time caring for our outer man? I want you to think about that. We wake up, we brush his teeth, I hope. We comb his hair, we give him a shower, we take care of our outer man. Sometimes we force him to exercise, some of us less than others. We feed him, some of us more than others. We bathe our outer man. Ladies, you put makeup on your outer man. I'm glad that you do. As a general rule, Most of the things that we do are to take care of our outer man, aren't they? Think about that for a minute. We take good care of our outer man. 
And why? Well, because we want him to be stronger. We want him to be more attractive. We'll spend a lot of money on his hair, on his clothing, on his exercise. We want him to be healthy. But I love what the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.7, he says, Rather, train yourself to be godly. Listen, for physical training is of some value. Some versions say, physical training profiteth little. It's of little value. But godliness has value for all things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Do you understand what he's saying here? He says, train yourselves to be godly because it holds value not only for the present life, but also for the life to come. Listen to me. Caring for the outer man is okay. It's fine if you do that. And there is some temporal benefit to that. There is some benefit to be gained from that. But listen, training and building your inner man is a far far greater value than anything that you would ever do for your outer man. It produces not only the benefit while you are here on earth, but it also produces an eternal benefit, something that you can realize, something that you can lean on into eternity. Yet most of us don't spend even a fraction of the effort building our inner man as we do building our outer man. The outer man is temporary. The older I get, the more I know that that's true. I have news for you, friends. The strongest outer man one day hang his head low. He's not going to be strong for his entire life. The outer man is dying. He's not going to make it forever. No matter how strong you make his muscles, no matter how attractive you make her hair, no matter how beautiful you make her face, it is only temporary. The outer man is dying. The outer man is deteriorating. He is not going to be strong and attractive for very long. And yet Paul says, while the outer man is growing weaker, what's happening to the inner man? He's being renewed day by day by day. He's being made stronger. He's being made healthier every single day. What a paradox. But that's what really matters, isn't it? Isn't that what really matters? Yet people spend thousands of dollars. They spend countless hours dressing up their outer man. They work so hard to make the temporary man so strong and attractive, and they spend no time, they spend no energy at all building up the eternal inner man, the thing that really matters. They don't invest in him. I've spoken to believers who can tell you how many hours a day they spend in the gym. I've spoken to believers who can tell you how many calories a day you should consume and what the fat content and everything else should be. I've found people who can, who, believers who can tell me the right foods to consume and exactly what size portion I should have. They know exactly how much they weigh every single day, yet day by day they starve their outer man. He's dying. Their inner man, rather. And as a believer, I want you to know that's not the way it should be for us. It should never be true of us. Listen to me, friends. Your outer man is dying. And the Bible tells us it's appointed to him one time to die. He's going to die. It could be 50 years from now. It could be 15 minutes from now. And I just want to ask you, are you ready to ride off into eternity on the back of your inner man or is he too weak to carry you? 
Is He strong enough to take you into the arms of eternity? Have you built Him up? Have you worked Him out? Have you fed Him properly? So how do we strengthen our inner man? How do we exercise Him? How do we nourish Him and build Him up? Well, first of all, if you look at verse 16, Paul says, our inner being is strengthened. How does it say? It says, with power through His Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Now listen, for those of you who are believers, there is a great conflict that is always at war in your body. There's a battle that is constantly going on in your body. Your spirit and your sinful nature are fighting with each other constantly. Your spirit wants to do the things that please God. Your sinful nature wants to do the things that please you and satisfy your body, Galatians 5.17. But one verse earlier, in verse 16, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, walk by the Spirit and you you will not carry out the desires of your flesh. You will not carry out the desires of your sinful nature. Listen to me. Believers who do not strengthen their inner man struggle in the battle between their sinful nature and the things of the Spirit. I want you to know that it's possible to be a believer and to just limp around struggling to carry your weight, struggling to overcome temptation and sinful desires of your body. It's possible to be a believer and do that. And it's especially true if you're not strengthening your inner man. I heard a man say one time in a dogfight, I can always tell you which one's going to win. The one that I feed. Right? The one that is strong. And when you feed the inner man a steady diet of the Word of God, he will begin to seek the Spirit's will and the leading of the Holy Spirit in daily decisions of life. When you begin to... Study the Word of God and consume the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will lead you in your daily decisions. Did you know that? If you will just fill your mind with the Word of God, if you will just submit to His instruction, if you will just yield to the guiding of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're going to find that your inner man is being strengthened with power. He's going to be strong. It's an explosive power. So how do I live by the Holy Spirit in my life? How many of you are big golfers? How many of you know somebody who's a golfer? One thing that always cracks me up about golfers. Nobody's a golfer, right? I don't think I saw any hands. I don't I want to get a five iron across the head. I always get a kick when I'm at work out of people who stand in the office, you know, and they, you know, you'll see them do this with their hands there, working their grip out. Have you ever seen anybody do that? They'll just be standing there like this, and then the next thing you know, they like begin a backswing, and you can see them trying to keep their left arm. You know what I'm talking Have you ever seen anybody do that? see it all the time. So these guys will stand there and they'll take an air swing playing golf in their minds. You'll see them take practice swings. Has anybody else ever seen anybody like that? Is it just me? It's just me. They're out there. But do you know why they do that? When I think about that, I was like, why in the world is this weirdo doing that? <laughs> no, they're not weirdos, but do you know what makes them do that? It's because their minds are fixed on the things of golf. Their minds are fixed on it. Their minds are fixed on the things of golf, and you're going to find out that they're probably consumed with their golf games. They'll spend time going to the range nearly every day or as often as they can. They will spend tons of money buying new equipment. And every time they walk past a checkout counter and they see a magazine that says, five tips guaranteed to drop five strokes from your game, they'll pick it up. You can count on it every time. Why? 
Because their minds are fixed on their golf game. Their minds are always looking for ways to make their golf game stronger. Now listen, that's what it is to live by the Spirit. I'm not saying you have to take spiritual practice golf swings in front of everybody and make them all think you're strange. But what I'm saying is it's to live a life where your mind is fixed on the things of the Holy Spirit. It's to spend your time thinking about the Holy Spirit. It's to spend your time reading the Word, and when you spend time praying that God will make it real and active in your life, you are filling your mind with the things of the Spirit. That's the way that it works. If you'll just fill your mind with those things, and then when you get to a place, listen to this, when you get to a place where you're about to make a decision your mind will instantly go back to the Scripture and your time of prayer, and you make decisions based on the things that you have discerned in those private times. That's why they're so important. Because if you haven't been there, you have no basis to make a godly decision. You'll make the wrong one every single time because you have no capacity to do otherwise. That's living by the Spirit. When you do that, your inner man is made strong, When you do that, He's been made able to protect you at moments of temptation. When you live a life characterized by that kind of leading of the Holy Spirit, sinful habits and behaviors are weeded out of your life. Those things are pulled out and you get rid of those and then you are strengthened with power in your inner man. Your inner man is reinforced. That's what it is. It's reinforced with this explosive power. Now, When you've begun to commit yourself to having your mind renewed by the Word of God, and when you've committed yourselves to life characterized by control of the Holy Spirit, where your minds are constantly fixed on Him and your meditation is constantly on Him, when sin is being removed from your life day by day by day by day, you move on to the next step in the progression. Do you see this? Now take a look at step two. Take a look at verse 17. So he says this, Be made strong with power in your inner man. Why? Now verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You see? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So wait a minute. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Wait a minute, Scott. Are you, you said this is progressive, right? Yes, it is. So verse 16 says, I'm strengthened by the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So do you mean that I have the Holy Spirit in verse 16 before Christ dwells in my heart through faith in verse 17? Is that what you're getting at? No, that's not it at all. Because we all know that's not true. You don't get the Holy Spirit before you're saved. Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit, right? Listen, let me help you understand that. The verb in verse 17, which is translated to dwell, is the Greek verb katoikeo. And this is what it is. It's a compound verb that is formed by taking the verb oikeo, which means to live, and putting in front of it the preposition kata, which is down. That's weird, eh? Katoikeo. So katoikeo then means to settle down in. It means to be at home in. It's to be where you belong. It's to just take residence and live there and be comfortable there. Do you see that? It's to settle right in. This last week, I was at a meeting for my company in the Dells for a few days. And while I was there, my company took really good care of me. They gave me a nice place to sleep. I had a shower. 
I had a refrigerator, I had a microwave, and I could have stayed there and I could have been accommodated indefinitely. I could have been there and survived. But I was not at home there. Do you see this? I was not at home there. You see, my hanging items were on those weird little wooden hangers that you stick in that strange closet place. You know what I'm talking about? My folding clothes remained in my suitcase. I never took them out. My toiletries remained in my little green toiletry bag. Every night before I got in bed, I was in the habit of looking under my mattress just to make sure I didn't have any tiny little visitors. Every day I was checking that weird little closet area to make sure that there wasn't any stuff in there that made me uncomfortable. The things that feel like home to me, my family, my books, the pictures on the wall, all of those things were back in Milwaukee. I was present, I was accommodated, but I was not settled in. I felt out of place. I was a little bit on edge. I was a little bit uncomfortable. That's the intent here. That's what he's saying. That's katoiko. Jesus enters into your hearts the moments that he saves you. That's true. But we can't expect him to feel comfortable in a house that is dirty. For those of you who don't live by the Spirit, for those of you whose lives are filled with clutter, those of you whose lives are filled with sin, Christ cannot settle down. He cannot settle in. He cannot make himself comfortable as long as there's sin there. Do you know what he's doing? It's not home to him. And he's always looking under the mattress. He's always looking in that weird little closet space. But when you live by the Spirit and you're guided by the Word of God and prayer, when you discern and submit to the Holy Spirit's leading and prompting at time of decision, of temptation, Christ is able to make Himself at home. Because you're weeding out all of the garbage. You're getting rid of all of the junk and all of the critters and all of the dirt. Then He can feel at home. He's able to settle right down. Do you see that? He's able to really feel comfortable there. You know, he's very patient with us, isn't he? He's very patient. And he will live in a place where the room is dirty. He doesn't just get up and leave because you have a little dirt on your spiritual floor. He doesn't just get up and leave because your bed is unmade. And I want you to know that he continues to love even those children who aren't doing the things that please him I can remember as a young man, I was always worried about what my dad thought about me. And I had certain habits that I knew wouldn't please him. And so I did those things places where he couldn't see me. I did those things at times he wasn't looking because it made me feel uncomfortable to know that he had set a standard and that I was falling short of it Of course, he knew. He found out. The Holy Spirit has a way of doing that. And he loved me anyway. And that's the way it is for Christ. Let him settle in. Let him look under the mattress. Do you have anything to hide from him? Is it okay with you if he looks in your closet? How many of you have a junk drawer? I think, yeah, I think every drawer in my house is a junk drawer. I suspect you have spiritual junk drawers. I know that 
my wife and I go on a trip. My family lives down in southern Missouri. Before we leave, my wife spends an entire day cleaning the house from top to bottom. She says it has to be Sue Wood clean. That's her mom. It has to be Sue Wood clean before we can leave. And so she spends an entire day cleaning the house from top to bottom. Because when she comes home, she can't settle in if there's a mess. I want you to know that Jesus Christ can live in your heart if you're a believer. But if you're leaving the place sloppy and messy, He's not going to be able to just settle in and get comfortable. Can I challenge you this morning to allow Him to settle in? And when He prompts you that there are certain behaviors or habits that make Him uncomfortable, pick them up. Get rid of them. Take the trash out. Clean the dirty laundry. He's not going to be happy and satisfied if you're trying to force Him to live in a dirty house. Would you let Him really settle down inside your heart? Would you build that inner man so that you can clean house for Him? That your inner man is strong enough to provide Him with a clean place to live? Are you able to do that? Are you willing to do that? Father, I thank You for Your patience with us. I thank You for Your kindness and Your love and Your mercy. Lord, I just want You to know that I have closets in my spiritual home that I don't want You to look into. I've got a junk drawer. I don't want You to see it. But God, I want You to be comfortable. And so I just pray, Lord, that You would, through the leading of Your Holy Spirit, empower me and my inner man to take out the trash and to clean up the junk so that Jesus Christ can settle right in like He lives there, like He belongs there. And that He can take charge and run my spiritual house for me rather than me trying to do it myself. Lord, for everyone in this building that has a spiritual junk drawer, I pray that You would empower them to clean up around their house.